You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, everybody up on YouTube land and Earth Station One folks on audio. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Welcome to another episode, and we've got a good one for you this week. We are joined by artist and writer Ron Riddell. Welcome. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show. It is great, and thank you for joining us, because I know this is right after a big con for you, so <laughs> so it's going to be a fun one, and so if you're a little punch drunk, this is perfect for you to be on the show then, because we'll, right. we'll take full advantage of it, don't worry. That's right, yeah. So folks, you know, you never know what he's going to come up with the answers tonight, and we definitely would love to hear from you guys tonight. Feedback at Earth Station One is definitely the way for you to get in touch with us. Of course. Mr. Mike is here. You ready to take it away, sir? I am. I am. Uh, howdy, 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 Ron. Um, let's, uh, for those people who don't know who you are, real quick, like, tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, well, I'm a comic book writer and artist. Um, I've done <laughs> a lot of work. Uh, I've been working in the business for since the early 1980s. Uh, got started at DC, did some work there, did some little bit of work for Marvel as well. Um, then, uh, moved back across the country to Oregon, which is where I'm from. It happened to be pretty much the exact summer that Dark Horse, as well as a lot of other indie, you know, comic companies were just getting fired up and, uh, and up to speed then. Um, Dark Horse was looking for some guys who had a bit of a track record working for the, the bigs <laughs> and uh, wanted to get some people like that working for their company. Um, so I wound up hooking up with them and created uh, Trekker, sort of my dream project, not sort of, my dream project. Uh, <laughs> Not trying to be cute or coy here. It's what I'm passionate about doing. Uh, and did some other work for Dark Horse as well. Uh, I drew um, some Predator miniseries for them. Did some work for Star Wars, things like that. So um, been at it a long time and uh, still kicking strong. <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, let's, that, let's go, uh, let's start from the beginning then. Let's go back to like, when did you first have uh, an interest in comics? Was it from a very early age? It was, yeah. It, it bit, it bit pretty early and pretty deep with me um i mean when i was a, when i was a little kid because my hair color will let you know i'm i've been at this i've been around for a while um but when i was a little kid comic books were pretty much ubiquitous they were you'd go into a you know convenience store corner market or whatever and there'd be uh there'd be the, the the stack of candy bars right and there'd be the, the little balsa wood flyers and there'd be the comic books um and and I just sort of took them for granted, like a kid takes everything for granted. But in as in second grade, so it's pretty early on, um, I had a classmate who became my best friend. And uh, one time I was, you know, went over to his house to hang around and stuff. And he had in the basement on this big table, uh, these stacks of comic books. And I, you know, like I said, I read comic books. I knew about them. I knew to read them, but his were sorted by creators. He had like some fantastic fours that were by Stanley and Jack Kirby, you know, and he had Uncle Scrooge by Carl Barks. And it may sound whatever, it is overly simplistic, but like I said, I just sort of took it for granted. They just they just appeared, right? But mm -hmm. 
when I was talking with this, this guy, Kurt Thayer was his name, the light bulb went off in my head. And I said, people do that for a living. That would be kind of cool. Um, yeah. And I don't know why it hit me like that when it did. I, I, I was like, what, you know, maybe like seven, eight years old or something like that, um, which is ridiculously young for this sort of thing. Um, actually, we met in second grade. It might have been a couple years later before the light bulb went off. But anyway, I was still pretty young. Uh, so, so by my grade in my grade school years, I was starting to, you know, draw my own characters and make up stories about them and stuff like that. So, um, so it bit hard. But back then, like I said, I was a little kid. I was growing up in Portland, Oregon. The idea about being a professional comic book artist was like saying you wanted to be, you know, an astronaut or something. It was so <laughs> remote. I never thought there was a, a chance that I could do that because the entire comic book industry then was in the middle of Manhattan Island, which is like on the other side of the world, you know. Um, so it was just like one of those things you dream about. Like I dreamt about being a, a fighter pilot, you know, <laughs> something like that. Um, but one little step at a time, things broke in such a way that I that I wound up living in New Jersey. And I went to the Joe Kubert School uh, right nice. when it was sort of starting up. Um, Joe had been one of the artists that I discovered in my, you know, youth of reading comic books. And I mean, I don't think you could read a Joe Kubert comic without getting sucked into that story what, that he was telling you. And it was just transporting <laughs> transporting um so when i heard that he was starting up a school i said this might be a way i could actually do this so mm -hmm. um i applied got in uh one morning i wound up standing in the middle of new jersey and said i guess i'm serious about this this might really <laughs> happen so after going to the cuban school it was for two years a two-year program first now it's a three-year program but i went there met some great classmates who have gone on to have pretty great careers in comics um was able to use that and 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 uh, uh working under joe's tutelage after the school uh after the school ended to get some short stories at dc comics uh that led to larger projects so that's that's kind of my origin story i guess <laughs> as you were as you were developing your own artistic style what who were, would you say are your top influences um that's i mean it, it's a real potpourri um the the Sort of the most the most conscious ones, the ones that I um, sort of consciously most aspire to are people like Al Williamson uh, mm -hmm. and Hal Foster, and to um, to sort of a lesser extent in a way, Joe 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 Kewitt, who, who has a profound influence on me in my approach to storytelling, my sense of story structure, um, the sense of trying to create drama and stuff. Although his actual drawing style is something I can't touch. It, with Joe, it's just too intuitive and stuff. My my own uh, temperamental leanings are more towards people like I mentioned, you know, um, Al Williamson, uh, Foster, Wally Wood, people whose work is sort of very balanced and sort of classical, you know, um, in, in, in its, and uh, Hal Foster, you know, just as classical as it gets. Those guys bit me fairly young when I got into adventure comic series like Prince Valiant, like, you know, Flash Gordon and EC mm -hmm. science fiction comics of the 50s. So those influences are all there. But then underneath that, there's also, when I was a kid growing up, there's no denying. You know, I, I looked at Jack Kirby comics. You can't look at Jack Kirby comics and not want to have some of that pizzazz in your work. You know, John Burns run on X-Men. Uh, I mean, the, Neil Adams. It's, it's, there's a bunch of guys. But the, I'd say the two poles that I sort of go between is, is sort of that romantic classicism of somebody like Al Williamson with all that grace and elegance of his art. And then to the extent that I can get at the, the, the drama and, 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 um, and energy of Joe's work, 
Um, so somewhere between those two poles, that's kind of where I where I land. I noticed that uh, you know, and uh, I, I'm a DC fanboy, and I noticed when you did a lot of your work for DC is not is not superhero work. Um, you did a lot of titles like you know war titles like Sergeant Rock and Unknown Soldier, uh, Warlord, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, Swamp Thing, I guess, would be the closest. I mean. Did you, was that something that you chose or you just didn't like happen to have uh, those opportunities to work on like Batman or Justice League or anything? Right. I was, I was not one of those guys who could pick his shots. I couldn't go up to the DC people and tell them what book I wanted to draw. Right. So it was the jobs that I was offered. Um, Some of that was, I think it was because, like I say, my influences, the, the, the stuff I carried around inside me that was coming out in my work probably seemed more suitable towards some of those, those other genre titles um mm-hmm. also i was coming uh, i was getting into the business at the time that G- uh, dick giordano was the I, I don't remember his title was managing editor or he was the he was the head guy in the editorial department at dc comics and uh dick giordano legendary uh, comic book creator inked neil adams classic runs on uh, a lot of the the, the green lantern green arrow stuff and, and batman stuff um so Everybody knows Dick from those those superhero jobs that he did. But here's a little known fact, maybe for people about Dick Giordano. He didn't really like superheroes. Mm-hmm. Dick's favorite comics were detective stories, westerns, romance comics. So when he was the managing editor of DC, he made a very conscious effort to try to expand the, the types of stories that we could do in comics. So I got to do some science fiction things, and they did um, Air Accent of Thunder, which is sort of like their version of a Conan sort of story. Um, and I want to be in the artist on that. So in other words, I think I got a lot of those non-superhero jobs because that's just kind of that's that my art style sort of lent itself to those things. And for a mm-hmm. while, there were those kind of targets of opportunity in the business. In the end, you know, you can't be in this business forever and not draw superheroes, it seems hardly. <laughs> <It's back then. laughs> so I did wind up having a run on uh, on Justice League years later. But but yeah, I, 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 at one point, I, I even then in like the mid, late 1980s, I was saying, this is really weird. This is an industry that's like, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, 75, 80% of the books out there are straight down the middle of the road superhero comic books. And I somehow avoided that training. I, I get all these, these other, which fit my style better but of course they didn't have the visibility that a that a run on you know spider-man or something would have had but you know for better or worse that wasn't the that wasn't the track i seemed to be running on (laughs) well one thing that did impress me is that you were included you were part of that massively influential alan moore swamp thing run uh and i have to ask how was it working with alan moore um well it was (laughs) it was it was as great as you probably think it might have been um (laughs) Uh, that came. I was just in the right place at the right time. Uh, I, I at the Kubert School, one of my classmates, the guy that sat right next to me, was John Tottleben. And you want to talk about being intimidated oh, by a guy who just had incredible natural talent and ability? Uh, an upperclassman, the guy in the year above me, was Steve Bissett. So hmm. we would hang out. We, you know, the the it's a pretty tight group at the Kubert School. It's a bunch of nerds. You know, we all want to get into comics together. So we knew each other and hung out together. And um, and actually, before Steve and John worked with Moore on on Swamp Thing, uh, another class, upper classmate, Tom Yates, was was drawing the Swamp Thing book, written by Marty Pasco at the time. And um, Tom kind of had a he had to carry a lot of heavy water, as they might say, because he had these stories that were not were not as mind blowing <laughs> as what Moore would come on to do. But I, I first helped Tom out with some backgrounds and stuff on Swamp Thing. Um, 
and I so that that sort of had me in the in the, the world a little bit. And then when yeah, yeah. when Alan, Steve, and John came on board, um, Karen Berg was the editor. She was working with them, and she knew that I'd been to the Cubit School. I'd see her in the offices offices of DC Comics, and sometimes when the book would be in a little deadline trouble, and they needed five pages of fill in pencils or inks, I could sort of switch hit and sort of get into Steve's mode close enough that this that i that i wouldn't damage the storytelling too much uh and then john would ink it all of course and it would look like a great swamp thing story um and some issues uh i would be filling in for a few pages of inks um just trying to get as close to to Taliban's elegant you know amazing rendering again to just keep the those pages within the ballpark of what those guys are doing on the book and one time i got to draw um a solo swamp thing story that i got to to pencil and ink off of Alan's script. And it was an incredible experience. Uh, more scripts um, were full of uh, panel description and, and details and stuff. And that can be deadly in a comic script. If you're the writer, or the artist, and you're reading a script and it's all this direction telling you what to draw that the writer feels is essential to have in each panel, it often feels like you're slowly having a straitjacket lowered over your body mm. because you'll read the first sentence in the description and think, oh, that'd be a great image. I can do that. And then you read the second and it's, oh, I can't do that because he needs this too. So that's, that's the best option off the table. Then you read again. Nope. It, so, but it, it was exactly the opposite with the way Alan, Alan's script descriptions went, at least in my experience, he would say something like this is what happens in the panel. But then he would say things like, you could have things like this, and you could have things like that. Or if you have a better idea, really, we're just going for this kind of impression, this this type of impression. Like, you know, remember that moment in the Psycho movie when there's a shadow going up the stairwell and you hear this creepy music in the background? That's what we're after. So his his descriptions were impressionistic because he had a great visual sense and a great dramatic sense. So he was just trying to sort of get inside the story and let you feel what he was feeling the story needed. And as far as the specifics, he would make suggestions sometimes for camera angles or whatever, but it was always in a very conversational tone in the script because it's just him telling you a great story. Mm -hmm. And it inspired me to say, oh, what can I add to this? You know, a lot of times I didn't have anything better than his suggestions. Sometimes I thought of another idea. So it felt very collaborative and, uh, and, you know, he's just a great, a great writer. And, um, and I bumped into one time at the halls of a DC. He happened to be, you know, in the hmm. States. And uh, at that time, he was a pretty imposing figure, too. right? <laughs> well, but the time, he was very high. He was like, oh, Ron, it's so great to see you. Thanks so much for the work you're doing on Swamp Day. Was, I mean, it was just like, it was just good. This, this guy is saying this to me. It was really kind of surreal. <laughs> it was a great, it was, it was a great moment. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Anything else uh, you want, that you'd like to point out about your time with DC? As far um, as uh, nice memories or a story that you're particularly proud of? Um, maybe. I, uh, I'll try to make it, not take this too long with this, but when I was trying to get in, some, this is a time when DC, there was, there was like this thing called the DC implosion. So DC was making a lot of comic books, and then the, econ the economy had a downturn, and so DC really cut back the line. So a lot mm -hmm. of guys who were just starting out like me had been getting a short story here, a little bit of work there, and then all of a sudden it got cut off. And... Um, and that lasted for a while. Um, but then gradually, you know, a few of my buddies started to get another short story. Like, it's like, like the ice was starting to thaw a little bit. And one time, uh, my friend Jan Dursima, who went on to have a pretty damn good career. Um, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. and she was also one of my classmates at the Cuit School. 
And she was going into DC because she had had, she was doing a, I forget now what it was, but she was doing a job for them. And I said, Hey, I just finished doing this, this samurai backup story for Joe uh, on Sergeant Rock. And I thought that's some of my best stuff, you know, could you take it up there in the office with you and just make good quality photocopies for me? <laughs> I was too broke to get photocopies that I had to pay for. <laughs> anyway, wow. so she was up there and she was at the photocopy machine, uh, copying some of her own stuff and my story. And then she got, she got called away to have a conversation with somebody. My photocopy, my, my art was left on the, ma the machine. And uh, a then editor named Lori Sutton was walking by, saw my art there and said, oh, this looks like it might fit this story I, that I, this backup story I'm trying to get going in the back of Warlord. So she found Jan and said, oh, who is this guy? And uh, so that's how I got started doing what came to be my first sort of steady ongoing job at DC Comics, which is working on a thing called the Barren Earth, which is a backup in Warlord. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just a, it's just one of those stories about breaks, how you get a break in comics. It, you never know where it's going to come from. You just try to put yourself in positions where people can see your work that might be able to give you a leg up and stuff like that. It's just a wacky, fluky story, but it really led to good things. <laughs> I, I always like hearing about how people got in the different ways in the door because it's always, yeah. like you said, it's always different. There's no mm -hmm. set path. There's no um, set path. When, when did you get the itch to do something like a creator owned? Um, that was when, uh, that was when I moved back here to Oregon. Um, after I'd been in Jersey for about a total of eight years, um, the Cuban school years and then, then working and the, you know, getting things going slowly, gradually with DC and Marvel. Uh, I, I got to the point where I said, okay, I think I'm, um, I've got enough connections and relationships built here that I can probably head back home because <laughs> Oregon was always home to me, uh, and, and work long distance. Now, this is before there was an internet. I mean, fax machines and FedEx were just coming in. So, it was still felt very much like it was 3000 miles away from everything. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of a risk, but I did that. And again, it's another one of those crazy flukes of timing. I moved back to Oregon just as dark horse was getting going. And um, I was tabling at a local little comic book show uh, with some of my original art pages from some of the stuff I'd done for DC. And these two very tall young guys came up to my table and introduced themselves and saying that they were going to be starting, or they were just starting, a little comic book company right here in my own hometown of Portland, Oregon. Who would have thought it? You know, hmm. um, and they were trying. And they were, their names were Mike Richardson and Randy Stradley, the publisher of Dark Horse Comics, and the 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 editor at the time. He was he was one of the three or four guys in the company. Um, the Twin Towers, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Those were two tall young gentlemen, <laughs> um, very charming, very nice guys. Um, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm drawing the regular monthly Warlord comics at DC Comics, which is kind of like at, back then you were doing a regular monthly book. You were kind of where you wanted to be, right? Um, why would I leave that to go work for these guys? I, you know, who knew what was going to happen with, you know, independent black and white comics or a company like Dark Horse? Um, but one of them leaned over the table to me, and, and I don't remember which one it was. And they just said, Ron, if you come and work for us. We will pay you your rate and you can do whatever you want. If you want to write your own stories, great. If you want us to find a writer to work with you. And I thought to myself, I'll never hear this sentence again in my life. <laughs> and I was right. So up until then, I hadn't really thought, gee, I'll make my own comic book series in, in anything like a serious way. But I realized these guys are sort of opening that door for me. 
and uh, to make it worth the um, taking the risk of leaving the, the steady gig for DC Comics, I had a couple of young children at the time, so I needed to, you know, be bringing in some cash. Um, but to make it worth the time, uh, the, the risk, I should say, I said, I better come up with my dream project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought about that and what I'd want it to be. And uh, it, 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 the answer I came up with was Trekker. Um, I designed the character, came up with the worldview. I mean, I wanted to do science fiction because as as you could probably hear from some of those influences I named earlier, I love science fiction in comics. I love science fiction novels like Dune and the Asimov trilogy, um, <laughs> you know, Flash Gordon in the comic strips. Star Wars had come out. Blade Runner had come out by then. Um, there was just a lot of different kinds of science fiction, and it all spoke. It just seemed to open my imagination in a lot of different ways. And there weren't that many opportunities to do that in comics then. Also, that that Baron Earth backup that I did in Warlord that I mentioned was written by a guy named Gary Cohn. And Gary's idea was was a science fiction series that was more like an Edgar Rice Burroughsy sort of thing, but mm-hmm. there was a female lead character in it. And I just really enjoyed that. It was so cool to see the woman character not just being the sidekick or the romantic interest, but in that spearheading and action adventure comic. Uh just there were things that could happen with the emotional range you could tell and stuff. It was just different. It was, it felt fresh and different. So that's what I, I put all that stuff together <laughs> in my own, you know, my own version of what this could be. And I thought if she's a bounty hunter, a character that can, can roam around and go into different situations and arrows confront different sorts of, you know, bounties you're trying to collect, that gives the story a lot of sense of variety and motion. So that was basically what I came up with and pitched to Dark Horse. And what they should have probably said was, Ron, this is a very cute idea. We don't know how to sell a comic book like this. But they were also young and sort of, I guess I'd say, you know, enthusiastic and stuff. And they just said, that sounds great. Do it. And so then I had to figure out how to do it. (laughs) And I've been trying to figure it out ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've had great success with uh, with Mercy, uh, Mercy St. Clair, the main uh, character in Trekker. Um, uh, Yeah, I was going to ask you what the influence is, uh, the origin of of where the Trekker idea came from, but obviously, yes, <laughs> from reading it myself, I can, I can see all that. I can see, especially the early days uh, where she's on, uh, I think it's earth, right? Where, but that's much yeah, more right. of a Blade Runner type, like sort of environment. Um, and then now it's more adventure, like Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers kind of stuff, I think, which is really a great, and it works. Uh, she's a character that you can do a lot with a lot of different things with. She's right. got a lot. Of, so, um, so yeah, let's talk. Like, so she's introduced. You said that. Um, so was it kind of a rough start for her at Dark Horse? Um, no, it was. Um, it was like a fast start for her. Dark. What happened was, <laughs> I, I thought, um, they, their 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 flagship book was, I guess, Dark Horse Presents. Um, yes. Where there was an anthology book with a series of short stories, and that was great because that meant I could my first the first appearance of character was an eight page story in Dark Horse Presents. Um, and I knew it, it would, so we were serializing her first uh, story, full-length story, over those three eight-page chapters. And I thought, I can, I was a, I was a pretty young writer. I'd only written a few short stories in the back of Sergeant Rock comics professionally at the time. So when I came up with the idea for Trekker, part of it was that it would start small. It would start small scale, you know, a very sort of black and white two-dimensional character, the way she views the world. And the series is about her growing, her growing internally, discovering things about herself that the re- that the reader sees long before she does, um, 
and also going to 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 step out into a larger role and sort of becoming a character of destiny so i had that sort of real expansive you know grandiose sci-fi thing that i was aspiring to get and i knew that i didn't have the writing chops to pull that off right from the very beginning so i wanted to start with small bites and so in that first story i'd, I'd plant little seeds um references to an organization that's resisting the powers that be out in the stars and uh things like that and i thought I don't have all the details figured out on that yet because Dark Horse wanted me to get this story going, you know, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to plant some seeds and figure I'll, 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 I'll get that stuff figured out later. So it did, she did three short stories in Dark Horse Presents, and then right away they wanted to turn it into a regular ongoing series. So then I had to dive in head first with that. So some of it was was not making it up, but sort of fleshing it out and developing it more as I went along. So it kind of got off to a breakneck start there. And so she had her own series of Dark Horse for a while. It was uh, bi-monthly because I was writing it, penciling it, you know, inking it, all right. that sort of stuff. It's a, lo- it's a big load. But then they got to a point where it just, you know, the black and white market wasn't wasn't continuing to be as robust. And so Trekker, they wasn't able to bring in the numbers that they could afford to pay me to uh, to keep doing it on an ongoing basis at that rate. Uh, they said, we'd like to keep you doing Trekker, but can you cut down the, you know, we'd have to cut back on the price. And I said, I got a young family, got mouths to feed. So then I had to just put Trekker on, on, um, on more like an intermittent basis and Mm -hmm. take on other jobs through DC or Marvel um, to make more money. So, so I would do a story for Trekker, more stories in Dark Horse Presents or a standalone story like that. That was just more sporadic in the way that they would appear, which is a terrible way to try to build an audience. It's almost like (laughs) playing hide and seek with your audience. So uh, after a, a, a after a long protracted period of that, I finally just said, "This isn't doing anybody any good. It's not serving the the readers. It's not serving the series. It's not giving it a chance to really find an audience that needs." I felt I feel for a, a book like Trekker that needs like a steady, consistent, you know, publishing basis of some sort. So um, so that's what I'm doing with it now uh, through the, through the Kickstarters that I've been doing for the last several years. Yeah. When did you get the, yeah. So like you said, you had a, she was on a break. Did you, did you feel like, like, um, you know, I'm just going to put her on hold, um, until I can, you know, tell her story or was it something that just went in the filing cabinet and then you brought her back out recently, uh, well, fairly recently. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was definitely, I'm, I always knew that I wanted to get back to tell gotcha. the rest of the story. Nice. Um, yeah. I just, I, so when I, so I, what I always say that in 1999, I said, I, I'm putting it on hiatus. I, and I will get back to telling the rest of these stories when I can find a way to do that, to get the stories to come out on a regular, sustained, consistent, sort of predictable, scheduled basis, something like that. Um, and then skip ahead to whatever, 12, about, about 2011. Suddenly, Ron realizes there's an internet and there are web comics. <laughs> um, I mean, I knew these things, but but I suddenly realized, sorry, I, I finally figured out that I've got all the original Trekker art stacked in my closet because I never sold any of the Trekker originals. It's just too important to me. It's too wow, personal. Man, okay, that's cool. So um, I just sort of scanned those in and had some interns at our studio <laughs> scan them in for me. And then I started posting them as, as a webcomic, you know. Um, and the crucial thing that I did was I said, um, by the time I finished posting all of the existing Trekker stories, which is like 300 or so pages, I will have the next story ready to start posting here. So I subjected myself to the possibility of public humiliation if I didn't follow through on my word. And that gave me the motivation, I guess, to 
to get back to that. And luckily, at the same time, dark again, it's more timing stuff. It's so weird. But Dark Horse is just beginning to revise their or revive their uh, Dark Horse Presents book. And I bumped into the guys at a at a comic shop where they were doing a you know a little event about that. And uh, Mike said, "Gee, it'd be great to get Trekker back into some Dark Horse Presents stories." And I said, "I would love to get back to to doing." You know, because I knew when I made the web comic that that was the first step. I needed to get Trekker back into print because that's the way these stories are, are best enjoyed as far as I'm concerned. That's how I envision them being experienced. So, uh, and I thought, it, and I didn't know how I was going to get it back into print. I didn't know if Dark Horse would want to do it or, or, or you know, because the publishing world had changed a lot in those 12 years. But it turned out Mike was interested. So I said, I'd like to do that, but I don't want to just do, I'm not dallying or, or dabbling this time. I'm not effing around. You know, I'm back here. To, to stay I, i'm i'm not gonna have trekker disappear again um and he said well let's talk about that so we we, we met and we, we figured out a plan and a strategy and um so we got trekker back into dark horse presents then we did a a little om an omnibus collection to gather all of her black and white stories and stuff and we put that out and then i did two new uh trekker stories that were fresh ones in in those years 2011 12 13 around there but again, just um, after a little while, I was like, oh, we'll, we'll do one and then we'll see how this does. And then we'll find a place in the schedule to put out another Trekker book. You know, and I could see, I don't blame Dark Horse. They were great to work with creatively and everything. But, you know, Mike was running his company. He's got his publishing needs and requirements and, and a bottom line and all that sort of stuff. And they just weren't matching up with what I wanted for Trekker. You know, I could see it's going to be initial will come out. And then at some indeterminate interval, another story will come out. And uh, that just wasn't working well for me. So that, so sort of in a, in an act of desperation, I said, if I really want to try to get this thing to come out on a schedule that I think serves the series and the readers well, and lets me get these stories told before I'm dead, because I have quite a few to, t I know where the story is going and it's going to take a while to get there. And, uh, so I said, well, I'm going to have to try Kickstarter, which was just, you know, coming alive or, or mm -hmm. was growing into its, its, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the presence that it has now on the, on the landscape. And um, so that was a nerve-wracking, a nerve-wracking uh, a step to take. Uh, sort of overwhelming. Kickstarter is is a great machine, or what do you want to call it, a great uh, platform. But it's a huge learning curve, or several learning curves, that I had to climb going from being the guy that wrote and drew some stories to the guy that you know crafted campaigns and sort of have to become a self-publisher and wearing all those hats. It's a lot. It's a lot to do, but. Um, uh, I, it, but it's worked out pretty well so far. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, your Kickstarter story is one of the most successful ones I can think of. I, <laughs> I love the fact that you're able to produce this work of your own. And and let me give credit to like what a great environment that Dark Horse, Mike Richardson and them made a Dark Horse yeah. so that you created something and you still got to take it with you. You know, like it was yeah. yours. Yeah, that was one of the that was such a great thing about dark horse uh it was just a, a a small group of guys that wanted to make comic books that they really liked they were fans of comic books and fans of certain creators so when chris warner wanted to create uh, do a book they call that called black cross that's his paul chatter created concrete that's his you know uh they owned these things you know now dark horse has, has generated some properties that are company owned or, or co-owned with the the artistic and writing creative team mm -hmm. too i don't know all about all that stuff but in those early days some of us just got to we were given our creative head and we were given the the ownership of that stuff and that's 
it's just phenomenal. Like I said, I was, it was so much right place, right time for me. And, and so much we benefited from the fact that, that Mike Richardson is a huge comic book geek, you know, <laughs> in yeah. the best possible term. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, and it was really nice because I think a couple years ago, uh, it allowed you to publish, uh, the, uh, like omnibus with, right. um, with like, the dark horse stories, the, the early dark horse stories all collected in one big, massive hardcover. Yeah. Oh, I have a visual aid. This is, this is the book here. And it's, I, it's I that have that thick. somewhere it's, back there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like four pounds and four ounces. It's a big book, but it's all, yeah, we took all the, um, the black and whites and you colored all, them. Yeah. Yeah. I took all, because, um, and the reason I did this, I had done about three campaigns already. So I would be showing up at conventions and I'd have some of the Trekker books there, the ones that I'd done on Kickstarter. But meantime, the books that Dark Horse had put out, that that omnibus mm-hmm. of where they collected the black and whites and a couple of new trade paperbacks, those were all out of print. Yeah. So it'd be yeah. at a comic book store. And, you know, the first thing a lot of people, if, if there's somebody's new to Trekker, they'll come up and the natural question to ask is, which one's the first one? Yeah. And I would have to answer them. And honestly, you can't get it. I mean, unless you're like, go look for it on Etsy or, you know, go on a scavenger hunt. It's not, I don't have to sell the, the dark horse warehouse is out of them. I, I sold all that I could get. Um, and that's a terrible, <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say to somebody who's trying to get, they want to get turned on to your comic, you know? We, yeah. And collectors want to start like readers want yeah. to start with the first issue, no matter how bumpy or bad it might be like, you know, it's like, Oh, it's pretty rough in the beginning. No, but they <laughs> want to start there, but the good right. stuff, the so, good stuff is better. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and and also, you know, I will say that it's really important to me that every single of the the trade paperbacks or whatever, they should work as a self-contained standalone adventure. Yes. Uh, each yes. character story has introduces the characters and the world, sets up an adventure, takes you through it, and resolves it in the in the pages of that one volume. Um, but when you put them all together, they that's when you see this this arc of Mercy of Mercy's life mm-hmm. journey, the gradual evolution of her as a human being. And the world expanding and becoming more complicated. So yeah, I wanted to work on both of those levels. But yeah, I mean, for a lot of readers, they want to start. I'm I'm that way. If I <laughs> discover uh, if I discover a musician that I like with their fourth album, I go back and get them all because I mm-hmm. want I want to I want to trace. And some of them can be kind of clunky and there's bumpy ones there. But I like the whole picture. So I needed to get all those stories back into print. And I thought, well, they've already appeared in the past as floppies and the street paperbacks and dark horse did the little black and white collection so how can i bring them back in 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 a format that you know that will make their presentation consistent with the new stories which are all in color and be a format we haven't seen before and i was trying to think should be a series of trade paperbacks or whatever and i was having a beer with my buddy carl kiesel who's a pretty damn good kickstarter creator and a phenomenal comic books maker himself and he was saying you need to do some hardbacks ron carl is much more of a visionary thinker like that than i am because I thought hardback, but um, but he he was right. People really like that that really you know um, that really deluxe sort of packaging. So so that's what I did. Um, and so this 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 first ball, you know, is, is is the complete journey volume one, and that has all those old um, the, all the out of print stories that I done from Dark Horse. Everything I did from 1987 through like 2012 or 13 or whatever. That's all. It's like 528 pages long. <laughs> There's some extra features. Um, it's got like spot gloss on the cover and a ribbon bookmark. So I, I you know, we because the Kickstarter campaign did well, we got to add some of those um, uh, stretch goals and 
and embellish the book and make it even cooler. So, um, and yes, yeah, because I own Trekker, I own the copyright on it, so I can take those stories and do what I want with them. <laughs> and and I it would be remiss if I didn't point out that people can get that right now um, because you've got the second collection, the second omnibus, and a Kickstarter right, right now going. Uh, by the time that this airs, it's going to only be a few more days until the campaign closes. But I would definitely encourage people to check it out. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, the, the, you can just go to by going to trekkerkickstarter.com. So. <laughs> it's been, and, uh, uh, yeah. it's great following adventures. And yes, I was going to point that out. I like the fact that even though I like to start from the beginning as well, like when I first met you in, I guess, 2019 or whatever, I picked up a trade, uh, the newest one, and fell in love with the character. And, you know, yes, I knew that there was some stuff that was, you know, her backstory, but it, it didn't feel like, uh, you know, I didn't feel like I was lost. Great. Uh, you could just, I mean, you could just jump in and have, and you know, and have the adventure and be like, okay, this is cool. Now I'm going to make it a point to to find out more. I mean, literally, I just got tingles on my spine because when I, when I talk to people at conventions, I, I tell them exactly that. I say, if I do my job right, uh, I want somebody to be able to pick up any one of these books that they find randomly at a sit on a table. They read that story. Um, they say, this is a great adventure. Clearly some cool stuff happened before this. I want to find that out. And I want to see what happens next with this character. But this story, if this is the only Trekker book somebody reads, I want them to say not, what the hell what was going on? I don't even get it. The story doesn't end here. I couldn't right. understand half of the stuff is going on. I, I want people to be... Yeah, I want to play fair with the audience, right? I want to give them, I want to give them a, a, a solid dose with each and every tractor story. Because if I do it well enough, I don't have to um, hold the rest. I don't have to hold the rest of the story ransom, and you got to buy, you got to pay to get the rest of the story. I don't want to. I've got over 120 pages in each one of these trade paperbacks. I should be able to tell a good story in that amount of time. I feel <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and the, but again, you put them all together and you get that bigger tapestry. So, um, thank you. I'm so glad it worked for you that way. That's exactly what I want. <laughs> no, absolutely, and and I like the fact that it's a different kind of adventure. I mean, she's on a ice world, or she's on a you know a, a desert west. It's a, it has a western feel to it. Um, right. You know, there, obviously, there's the Flash Gordon elements to it, the sci-fi adventure elements to it. Um, and the ongoing serialization, but uh, yeah, each adventure is, is 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 does work as a standalone, and and yeah, yeah and, and, and Mercy just kicks ass, man. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, there's also um, uh, my my daughter. Years ago, she was uh, she she came bounding in my studio and said, "Dad, turn on the TV and watch this show, Firefly, because it's a lot like Trekker." Um, and uh, and I, I yep, it is. That's there's a lot of sort of sci-fi western shooting from the hip sort of stuff happening in that and that's of course set on spaceships zipping around out in the stars which is what mercy's stories are currently doing a lot of that but um yeah i mean that's that's with each of the trade paperbacks that i do i almost try to have it be like a, almost a different subgenre of science fiction mm -hmm. uh, the one called chapel town is definitely a sci-fi western i mean she goes to a dusty frontier town and she <laughs> she scrapes with the sheriff there yep. so i mean it can't get more western than that right you know um there's one of them where she and her little group of friends uh, are on this 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 primitive raw jungly sort of moon, and there's um, there's a creature that's been created genetically modified to become some version of a super soldier that's on the loose, and but it's but it's it's a monster. So it's mercy versus the monster in the jungle. So that's like 
that's like Tarzan versus some beast in the jungle, or maybe it's sort of like Predator or something. So, I was going to say, so I got a, I got a Mercy versus Predator vibe when I read that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's a different sort of a story, right? And uh, there's there's one where she gets to this space station that's the that's sort of the heart of the rebellion against the galactic powers that be, and she's there to see if that's a way that she can help to oppose the rebellion because she has a lot of philosophical differences with this group. But the point is that this story is more. There's a saboteur. There's somebody on that station that's trying to bring them down. And so that's more like the suspense. Can Mercy find the saboteur, reveal them, and stop them in time to save everybody on the station? So that's a, a whole different kind of a story. And they all fit within the the broad rubric of science fiction if you got some spaceships. <laughs> and they all hang together as a tracker story because it's all anchored to this journey, you know, Mercy St. Clair's on. Um, if she's a if she's a solid enough, charismatic enough compelling enough character i can make all these stories work and it all it all fits together i i never want trekker the despite the fact that i've been doing it for 35 years now or whatever hmm. um with with sometimes there were these big breaks that we've talked about in between stories but each story should flow very organically into the next one um as mercy evolves and changes that should all be incremental and and the story should because it's just too jarring. I mean, if, if you're reading a story and all of a sudden there's a huge shift in tone or art presentation style or whatever, it just throws me out of the story. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of, of, of this sort of storytelling to me is it should be immersive. It's like I always say about Joe Cuba, when you read a Joe story, it's like you open up and you get that splash panel, right? And he just like grabs you by your lapels and she, he pulls you into that story and he will not let you go until the last panel of the last page. And if there's some huge <clears throat> disconnection or something in the middle of a story that throws you out of the story, that's uh, that's not doing your job. <laughs> so I try I, to keep that all smoothing flowing. I love first page splash panels that you just <laughs> open the book and they're right there. You're in it. Like, it's just, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, very cool. Um, Mike, I think uh, he's primed and ready for the geek seat now, now that we found out, like, you know, about his Well, you've gone through his whole career, you know. From the <laughs> so far. So far. So far. So far. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, next, uh, yes. next we're going to be finding out what he had for breakfast and everything, so this should be perfect. <laughs> All right, Ron, are you ready for your first question in the geek seat, sir? I think so. Let's give it a try. Oh, sure. <laughs> okay. Ron. What was your favorite geek out moment? Can I can I make it a tie for first? Of course, this is your segment. Okay, yeah, this is all for you. Um, the first one I would have to say is that I mentioned in the past how um, how important it was for me when I when I encountered people like Al Williamson's art. I mean, that just you know mm -hmm. set off all the 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 buttons in my head or whatever. Well, then years later, I'm drawing the Star Trek comic book for a few years when Marvel had the rights to it. And I found out that my inker was going to be Al Williamson. Uh, Whoa. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. One. It was, uh, they did a, they did a book called Star Trek unlimited. It was like mm -hmm. a double size book. Yep. And, uh, there would be a, like a full length, you know, 24 or 20 page story of the original series and a 20 and a full length story of the next generation. Mm -hmm. And I do the mm -hmm. next generation stories and, uh, and Al Williamson inked some of those. And wow. I had met Al once many years before when I was living in New Jersey and I drove up with uh, Tom Yates and a couple of other guys who knew Al, who had met Al. 
And so I got to meet Al in his, in his studio, which was another big geek out moment. Um, and he's just this great, affable guy, you know, and, and then here I am, and I'm just like, you know, I'm one of the, I'm one of the, the apostles. We're not worthy. <laughs> We're not worthy. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, so seeing Al Williamson ink my pencils and I, I, I um, the, the cover of the first issue that I, that I drew that Al inked, I, that's one of the pieces of original art that I, I will not part with. It just, it will not leave my hands. <laughs> uh, the other one is the other one was when um, uh, a few years ago, Carl Kiesel pointed out that Katie Sackhoff, uh, actress who played uh, Starbuck in the revised Battlestar Galactica and is now in the Mandalorian series, but that right. she would be great to play to play Mercy St. Clair in a TV series or movie. And he was spot on about that. She is just she's got she's got that sense of toughness and that sort of physical danger and threat like you said mercy's a badass and uh katie has that and she also has this incredible depth and emotional range that that conveys the vulnerability underneath all of that toughness you know or along with all that toughness anyway and then i got to meet katie sackoff at a, at a convention a few years ago some friends of mine had met her and and had her sign uh, one of those personalized uh, photographs and it said to ron i'm your trekker and so that was a pretty great moment wow too. <laughs> So I can't choose between those two. <laughs> That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. That is awesome. What was your most disappointing geek out moment, though? Um, I guess that would have to be, um, and hang with me for a second on this, it was, I, I got a call from Dark Horse Comics many years ago um, asking me if I wanted to draw, they just got the rights to do Johnny Quest. Would mm-hmm. I like to draw Johnny Quest comics for them? And the only sane response to that is hell yes. Um, <laughs> because if you grew up when I did anyway, Johnny Quest was like, it was as good as TV got. It was an animated series, but the characters were all designed by by Doug Wildey and Alex Toth, which are like the most brilliant guys working in the field. And the stories were these cool, you know, adventures of of uh, monsters and, and mysteries and stuff like that. And I thought getting to draw those characters under those designs in comic books, in my medium, what could possibly be better? And um, and it was a good experience, but the the, the disappointment was um, then I found out that they were doing the new adventures of Johnny Quest, where the characters had been um, uh, modernized or updated in their looks and stuff. Right. And uh, so I, I wasn't able to use those Toth and Wildy you know designs as my as my absolute bible, as my absolute sources. They were. They were modified somewhat. You know, it wasn't modified enough that it took all the joy out of it. And there's still great. It was still great fun to do. But that was. But still, I mean, my first thought was, I didn't get to try to draw you know, these these Toad Wildly designs, and it wasn't quite that. So that was um, that was that was a that was a blow I had to absorb. <laughs> well, couldn't you have done? You know, hey, you know, all of a sudden they look like just like the comp the cartoon. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we did we did eventually we did have some sort of flashback moments when they were younger. And I said, so I, I did the best I could there. <laughs> That's cool. I could live with that. What keeps you out the most? What geeks me out the most is probably um, when I see really classic sci-fi and fantasy illustration. I mean, when I see a, a when I see a piece by by Frank Frazetta uh, or Wallywood, I still don't know how the hell they do it. That I just mm-hmm. I know I've been doing this job for a long time now. I, I I try to develop my own craft and stuff, but some of those guys, I still look at that stuff and it's just magical to me, and and which is great because it. it 
I think that's what keeps any artist going is you just you're just trying to get it right one goddamn time. Can I just nail it? And at least for me, I never do. I, I sometimes get pretty close to what I'm after, but I never hit it. You're trying to it's like you're trying to you're chasing your first high. <laughs> sure, sure, the, sure. No, that makes sense. First high was when I saw like um Alex Raymond drawing Flash Gordon, you know, I, what, you know, actually my real first high was, was uh, King Comics, Flash Gordon, number five, drawn by Al Williamson. I saw it on the comic stand when I was a little kid. I'd never heard of Flash Gordon. I saw mm-hmm. Flash in the title. I thought it was DC's Flash. I picked it up. <laughs> I said, this is not Flash. What is this? I opened up the first page and there's, there's um, Flash and Dale and Zarkov wading through a swamp. It's an overhead shot. And there's like these jungly vines and, and alien creatures scurrying through there. I know exactly I was, the image you're talking about. <laughs> and I was just transported. I was immediately there in the swamps of Mongo. I'd never had that kind of a, like really, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. I was just thrust into that planet, that world. And and then every panel was so gorgeous. And um, so ever since then, I just, I, that's what geeks me out. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Because now I think I remember that that comic also like Mike said <laughs> and it's such a classic scene and yeah huh. I thought I found Flash Gordon the same way oh wait when is he gonna start running you know I can't wait to see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny yeah that's awesome what turns your geek off um as much as anything I guess it's when 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 people when I hear somebody criticizing something and they're they're being it's like overly obsessive on on what I consider unimportant details, <laughs> um, and that and you know it's like never let never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Never let, never let never let the laws of science or whatever get in the way of telling a story that grips a reader and tells an emotional tale and takes them on a journey. Um, there, you know, I, I'm I'm probably. I mean, if I were ever to have a uh, like a, a an astrophysicist read my comics, I would probably be in a world of hurt because I am not an astrophysicist, and I'm just telling my sci-fi Western stories, shooting from the hip, and um, probably getting lots of things wrong um, on that level. But but um, but on the level of just trying to tell a story, telling that that feels true to to the human experience, to not try to sound too you know grandiose about it, but that's what matters to me. Um, in the same way that I'm not that impressed when I see somebody do a story that has really clever plot twists and turns and intricate plotting and stuff like that. Uh, if, a, if the story has heart, that's what works for me. And sometimes people who chip away at the other things around the edges, I say, you're missing the big picture here. You're missing the core of what this thing is about. So I guess that'd be my, my bum out. <laughs> oh, I totally understand. I kind of feel the same way on that one. Yeah. What fictional character would you like to meet the most? Um, probably Mal Reynolds, the the captain on Firefly. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you guys watch Firefly, but uh, oh god, he's, yes. He's just a rascal, and I think having a beer with him would be one hell of a good one hell of a good evening. <laughs> You'd have a great conversation with this guy. Um, th- there's a lot of people that you know. There's a lot of characters, fictional characters that. I would sort of be a little bit, find a little bit too imposing to be around, but I, I think he has enough 
sort of self-effacing humor <laughs> and uh, just uh, just looks at the world with a little bit of an ironic stance, but he's not as bitter as he wants you to think he is. So I think he'd be a, I think he'd be a good guy to hang out with. <laughs> no, that's a great one. That is a great one. What fictional character would you not like to meet? See, that was a tough one because there's a million of them. Um, there's so many that are scary. Um, the Green Goblin. I would not want to hang out with that dude. Uh, mm-hmm. Dark Side, <laughs> Dark Side from uh, from Kirby's, uh, you know, um, from Kirby's work Kirby. at, uh, yeah. at DC. So there's there's a bunch of them. So I don't know. Uh, as far as just unsavory characters, I don't know. There's there's just too many to choose from. I don't have a single one to, to call for. I guess. Sorry to say. <laughs> no, that's good. You just don't want to walk down a dark alley and meet any of them. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what is your favorite geek word phrase? quote or pose uh i got the first one that comes to mind is it's clobber in time <laughs> it's just you know <laughs> it's uh i don't know i just maybe reveals the, the age i was when i was reading those comics but seeing the seeing the the big old you know orange brick thing character coming out and just bellowing out it's clobber in time i said well this is going to be a fun this is going to be a fun story whatever happens next is going to be fun <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially against the Yancey Street Gang, you know. The Yancey Street Gang, that. yeah. <laughs> those, those palookas from Yancey Street, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I love that. What is your ideal geek occupation? <laughs> uh, if I understand the question right, it's 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 what I'm doing right now. Writing number and one answer forward. right there. You got it right I mean, on the head. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's, you know, that's the great thing we love to hear is like, I'm doing it, dude. This is what I do, you know? Yeah. And the- I mean, it checks. I mean, just, just drawing comic books. Um, uh, it's not an easy thing to get into. It's not a, it's not an easy, it's not an easy uh, path to take, but it's, it's, it's what I want to do. So that alone would be good enough, let alone being able to do it on, on a, on a project that, you know, that is such a personal one and, and that I know exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing on each page and in each panel. I know the purposes. I know what I'm, I know that it connects with readers. You know, I know that the characters that came out of my imagination, uh, make a connection with other people. It's, I I can't really express exactly what all that means, but it's just so amazingly fulfilling. Yeah. Wow. Understandable completely. I love that. What, what geek occupation would you not like to do though? Uh, Boy, I, I, one that, um, <laughs> uh, I might get some hate mail on this, but the idea about being like an in-betweener in animation, <laughs> um, it seems like such a thankless task to me. Um, that's, that's one that I thought, and I mean, and I'm not, not taking anything away from those people. As far as I can tell, maybe the best cartoonists in the world all seem to work in animation because they can do so much with so few lines and stuff like that. But it just seems like it's, it's, you're, you're stuck in the middle of a process there. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm, I'm much, I'm so much wanting to tell the story, you know, th- that is my story that, that doing a lot of the heavy lifting for somebody else would be, would be a tricky thing to do. Okay. No, totally understand that. Now animation is such a tricky field anyway. And then, oh, to, yeah. you know, so it's it's interesting, and then you know, a lot of the people are like, "No, wouldn't want to do that part." Because we actually had you know, somebody on a, a couple of weeks ago who said, "You know, I just would not want to do rotoscoping." You know, so so it's <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I got to say, when I was when I was a kid, I, I I was really thinking at one point about 
you know, would I want to draw comic books or would I want to do animation? Because like, like all kids, I loved, the, you know, watching the Disney animated movies and stuff like that. And they're really cool. But that was the thing I thought, well, if I do the comic books and I'm doing all the art myself, right? You know, and, um, and if you're animation, you're just part of a team. And I kind of held to that view. And then years later, I saw, I saw, um, I, I, I know it's not regarded as one of their, one of their, their, their best you know, most successful movies, but it was when I was watching Pocahontas of all things, but I just, there was some beautiful animation in that movie. And I said, if I was part of a team that did this, that would be pretty cool. So, um, so I've softened on my stance on that, (laughs) (laughs) but not to say I still don't prefer doing what I'm doing. (laughs) That's awesome. That is awesome. All right, Ron, are you ready for your final question in the geek seat? Yeah, I think I'm doing okay so far. Let's see if I can get out of this thing alive. (laughs) there's been a couple who've like really stalled on this question so this is for everything so what is your ultimate geek fantasy (laughs) Uh, i'm afraid this is an easy one for me too i would love to see uh trekker um as a live action tv series or series of movies um i'd love to see what would happen if my if my story got on the big screen and um i mean i might cringe when i see it but but i would want (laughs) to see it to know you know what i mean because you know, some creators say, oh, I, their book gets turned into a movie or their comic gets into a movie or, or TV series and, and it can fall down. But um, that would be cool to see, to, to see my stories uh, hopefully more or less preserved intact, uh, reaching an even wider audience than I can do, uh, than I can find in the comics. It would be cool to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I, I fully was expecting that from you tonight. Actually, <laughs> that was too predictable. I I would have thought if he didn't answer that for this answer, I would have been like, I would have gone, I would have just thrown the script right out the window. You know, that that was it. Well, Ron, I've got some was... great news for you, my friend. You've made it through the geek seat. Congratulations, Mister Mike Gordon. Tell the young man what he's won. You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network, a value easily worth nineteen dollars and fifty cents. Uh, but uh it has been really wonderful having you join us um the uh the the kickstarter like i said is live right now um if you guys are watching this within the next few days um so i i are listening to this i would uh strongly recommend uh checking that out just go to kickstarter put in trekker uh ron is there any website or anything else that they can use as a resource to check out what you're doing um well i also have uh trekkercomic.com which is that's that webcomic i was talking about all the trekker stories are posted up there um i view it as my electronic billboard you can go there if you want to you can just go there and read all the trekker stories there i'm hoping that what people will do is they'll get a taste for what i do with trekker there and then want to take a deeper dive and you know and frankly and help support me in a more material way by uh, by backing the kickstarters and, and that stuff so that would be another great place to find out more about trekker and really see what i really want people to know about me the most which is what i do a checker <laughs> yeah absolutely and and like we've said many times uh just because ron's met his goal doesn't mean that you know he wants people to not buy the book <laughs> like like if you want yeah, to get absolutely. the book and a lot of these rewards and extras like this is the time to do it so right. um and i and i'm pretty sure that uh this probably will not be the last Kickstarter you do this year, right? <laughs> my understanding? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, my goal is to do about one Kickstarter on an average of every eight or nine months. And since I have to write and draw the stories and get all that stuff done before I launch the Kickstarter, it keeps me pretty busy. But yeah, so once the uh, once this the campaign ends, and then it'll take some months because it's a hardcover and it's 
takes a while longer to get those things printed and produced. But once those get in readers' hands, I want to have the next campaign up and ready to go by uh, by late summer, early fall. I'd love to, this book to be in backers' hands by August. That's what I've sort of um, listed as my my expected uh, delivery date or whatever. They, they want you to do that on Kickstarter. And I'm hoping I built in enough cushion. So far, all of my campaigns have been fulf- have fulfilled right on time, except for the last one, which was delayed a couple months because it was a big printing error. Um, but yeah, I mean, I got a pretty good track record for, for getting things out on time. So we're going to get this next hardcover into backers' hands. And then, because I, you know, the hardcovers are great. I love making them. It's like the definitive final forms of these stories. But my heart is in telling the next story. And so mm-hmm. I've got the next one. I just can't wait to get to get the campaign going for that one, too. So we'll get that in this year, too. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Great to hear. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to close out the show. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about the movie Megan. I love horror movies, and if there's a creepy doll in it, even better. Hence why I was so excited for the film Megan, directed by James Wan. Was I expecting this movie to be super cheesy? Heck yeah. And that's part of what makes some of these horror films so fun. The script was tight and didn't take itself super serious, leaving the actors to really play their characters well and overall just have fun. Megan is about a little girl named Katie who loses her parents in a car accident. Her aunt Gemma takes her in as her guardian, and her aunt is also a high-tech toy developer who has been working on a lifelike doll that she thinks can help Katie cope with her loss. So she uses her niece to test out Megan. Katie has an instant attachment to Megan, and Megan's programming begins to change to protect Katie. And that's where all the movie horror fun happens, since Megan's one goal is to protect Katie in the way that she thinks she's supposed to. This film was fun, and not super scary, but it still had the horror there. I love horror movies about dolls, so this was right up my alley to sit back with some popcorn and just enjoy it. It's currently streaming on the Peacock app for those who want to check it out, and truthfully, I would suggest it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. It's time for a promo for the Epsilon 3 podcast. The Epsilon 3? What do we talk about? It's a Babylon 5 rewatch podcast. Babylon 5? What's that? It's the greatest 1990s sci-fi show in history. How are we going to watch it? With glee and excitement. How would we rate those kind of episodes? Out of jump gates. How many jump gates? Out of five jump gates. Because it's Babylon 5. That is correct. If you go to Zahadum, you will die. But you know what you won't do? You won't die listening to the Epsilon 3 Podcast, right here on the ESO Network. And that's going to end another episode of the Earth Station 1 Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Ron, thank you so, so much for being here and putting up with us it was awesome <laughs> <laughs> well thanks guys it was great i had a great time um do you want to promote the kickstarter again one more time and do you have any other conventions you're going to be at or anything uh oh so the kickstarter uh it's trekker the complete journey volume two a big deluxe hardcover um tells the second cycle of mercy stories um the first volume one is also available on the campaign 
It's the best science fiction stories I know how to tell. <laughs> and the uh, you can find it at trekkerkickstarter.com. Uh, or you can just go to Kickstarter and either look for Trekker or me, Ron Randall, and uh, it'll take you to that currently running campaign. You got a few more days, I guess, to back it. It ends on March 16th. Um, the I don't have any campaigns. Uh, campaigns. I don't have any uh, conventions coming up until June. I'm going to be doing uh, one in Salem, Oregon, called the Mid Valley Con. It's uh, kind of a new con. I think this is like just its second year, so it should be pretty, pretty cool, pretty uh, laid back and informal. But uh, I know some pretty cool creators are going to be there, so you might look for that one. And then I'll be doing the Rose City Convention, uh, my hometown show that I do every year. I've been at every single one of those darn things. Um, that's in Portland, uh, early September. I don't remember the exact dates, but uh, I'll be at those two for sure. Uh, maybe more if uh, if I can line them up. Cool. And if more funding comes in for the Kickstarter, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be another that's stretch all. goal. Yeah. <laughs> of course, of course. Come on, folks, give money so Ron can get to more conventions. You got and get more albums also. So there yeah, you go. Yeah. <laughs> of course. All right, and thank you, of course, Mr. Mike Gordon couldn't do this without you my friend as always it's my pleasure anything you want to shout out about sir yeah as we're recording this uh it is march 6th which is the birthday of will eisner and uh um in honor of will eisner i know that they have a thing that i guess called will eisner week in which they encourage people to pick up and read a graphic novel uh i have tried to read at least one every day this week uh in honor of him and uh, i think it's a great thing to do um, this is the Will Eisner, for those people who don't know, is is one of the guys who popularized the term graphic novel. Um, he is one of the, like, if there was a, uh, a monument uh, put to independent comic creators, uh, Will would be the guy. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, he is, uh, he is uh, uh, yeah. So, um, so if you don't know Will Eisner, check out his work, uh, his graphic novels, whether it's The Spirit, Contract with God, or some of many of the other ones that he did. And then there's plenty of other graphic novels to choose from. Heck, one of Ron's will do. Like, you can pick <laughs> one of Ron's to read. So, uh, uh, so yeah, go out there and experience some graphic novels. That is awesome, sir. That is awesome. Please check out, you know, get a graphic novel for yourself. You know, pick it up, go to your local comic shop, or, you know, go to Amazon or wherever you can find great, you know, graphic novels. There's so many shops out there now that are just do purely graphic novels and everything. It's pretty awesome to check it out. You know, it's good. It's fun to do. And, you know, we still have some really nasty weather, certain parts of the country, and you probably have a lot of free time on your hands. So pick up a graphic novel to read and everything. It's definitely worth it. Or if you're sitting on a beach somewhere, we're, you know, very jealous of that, of course, you know, <laughs> please, you know, and, you know, read a graphic novel. It would be great. We'd really, really appreciate it. Um, My shout out real quick is... I had a little extra time on Saturday, so I went back and I actually binge-watched the first seven episodes of Last of Us again. And, you know, I don't recommend binge-watching this, folks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could not sleep for half the night <laughs> because... I kept on looking out the window expecting to see mushroom people or something like that coming at me. <laughs> And it is an amazing, amazing series, folks. If you haven't had a chance to see it or yet, you know, please watch it. It is awesome. This next week is the season finale. And I'm just like on pins and needles about it. And I'm just like, wow, it's going to be awesome. 
it is going to be awesome and the acting is great the characters are great and you're like oh not another zombie show this is not another zombie show folks this is nothing like the walking dead or stuff like that this is an amazing amazing thing heck i might actually break down and you know borrow a friend's playstation or something and to play the video games or anything just to to try it you know so it's that's how intense it is and how much i'm enjoying this and i was hesitant at first i really was but you know i actually you know i had i had people who are non-horror fans say mike you've got to watch this you've got to watch this and folks if the third episode doesn't get nominated for an emmy this there's not justice in the world that's how good the show is it is just an amazing program so please check out you know like i need to be promoting the the last <laughs> of us you know you know <laughs> you know nobody's watching that show come on you know so so definitely check it out folks and everything it it's been a great week you know things are going you know and we're going to be having our darren episode um, on the 13th. So please join us live when we were remembering our friend Darren Noel. It would be great for you to join us. And since we're doing live, love chat, um, we'll be, you know, promoting it up on Facebook and Instagram, social media. And so if you're listening to this day of, because I think we're, this comes out on the 13th, please join us tonight and everything. So it'd be great if you could do that. And as always, thanks for listening to Earth Station One. We couldn't do this without you folks. We love talking to you guys. We love talking to wonderful guests. And, you know, Ron is always a great guy to talk to. So I really appreciate him being here tonight. And remember, if you want to leave feedback, please feedback at earthstation1.com. You can help support us also. T Public is the way to do that and get some really cool ESO swag. We have t shirts, we have mugs, we have tote bags we have pet you know shirts and everything it's pretty cool stuff check it out you could get to t public and just look up our station one or eso network and for as little as a dollar a week you could also help support the eso network patreon that's how we make our money here up on the show folks you know patreon is a great way to hear our shows early um we're coming up with new swag to give to some of our donators and we got some great plans for our patreon so you too can join into that we want to definitely do that kind of stuff remember you can find earth station one wherever fine podcasts are found and now earth station one could also be found in video format up on youtube we had some fun talks today for the youtube folks so definitely if you have a chance please check that out please subscribe and tell all your friends like and subscribe like and subscribe can't say that enough on behalf of myself, Mike Faber, Mr. Mike Gordon, and, of course, our special guest tonight, Mr. Ron Randell, thank you for joining us. We do appreciate you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next time on Earth Station One. Stay safe. Hug your loved ones. Peace. And we will see you soon. Cheers. Boom. We're done. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to the Earth Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Earth Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. 
Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our Tee Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.